Hear the word of God from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. These readings come from the New Revised Standard Version. You can find this reading on page 822 in the Pew Bible. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children and fields with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. The word of God for the world. Thanks be to God. The person who shows up and talks to Jesus in today's scripture reading is, quite frankly, every pastor's dream. He is inquisitive, he is open, and most importantly, he is ready to serve. He says to Jesus, I am ready, put me in, I'm, I'm willing to do whatever it is you ask me to do. Just name it, Jesus, and I'm in. Every pastor's dream. Now the fact that Matthew and Mark and Luke all mention this man in their stories of Jesus suggests that he made a pretty big impression on all three of those gospel writers. He's also unique in that Unlike all of the other people in the Gospels who decide to follow Jesus, where Jesus had to go out and find people and identify them and recruit them and convince them, this fella showed up out of nowhere, completely out of the blue, arrived on the scene ready to go, a, a nearly perfect, almost complete disciple ready to be plugged and played wherever Jesus needed him. Oh, and as it turns out, this fellow was also rich. Mark is the only gospel writer to describe this young ruler as a rich young ruler, which means that he was not only 
big in his heart and open in his willingness, he was also deep in his pockets and well-resourced. So he says to Jesus, tell me, Jesus, just, just tell me the one thing I need to do. I'm ready to go. I've done all of these things already. Just tell me the one thing I need to do to have eternal life. Just give the word and I'll go do it. And I have to say, for me, for all of my other clergy colleagues all throughout the denomination, I know what we would have said if we were Jesus in that moment. Let's put you on a committee. <laughs> Let's find a place for you to serve. Let's, let's figure out what you're good at. Oh, better yet, let's give you some pledge cards. Let me tell you about this upcoming campaign. Let's, let's find a place for you to get plugged into the system. I mean, after all, this guy was ready to go. He was wealthy. He was eager. Which is why I find the response of Jesus to this man to be such an upside-down response. Because if Jesus were like me and many of my clergy colleagues, he would have said to this man, great. How about funding my ministry for the next six months? How about serving on this committee? You look friendly enough. Let's make you an usher. How about, can you carry a tune? We'll put you in the choir. Even if you can't carry a tune, Michael will put you in the choir and work with you. How about a small group? You look like a good small group facilitator. Let's, let's, let's plug you into the system. Have you met Peter, James, and John? They're, they're good folks. Let's send you on a mission. But as much as Jesus would have wanted to make him a follower, because surely he did, Jesus identified that there was something, something else that Jesus needed to do with this man. Something that this man needed to hear. It was something that would turn this rich young ruler upside down. And it's the same thing that you and I need to hear this morning. One of the most influential books I have ever read in my ministry is a book called Under the Unpredictable Plant by an author named Eugene Peterson an author you may know through his most famous work called The Message. Under the Unpredictable Plant is a book that's written for pastors, a challenging book, a convicting book that helps pastors identify the blind spots in their ministry, the deficiencies within their ministerial identity and their character that if gone undetected could be very, very unhealthy. Early in the book, Peterson claims that there are two common types of clergy, both of which are equally unhealthy. The first kind of clergy he calls Messiah clergy. Messiah clergy are ones that go out and they look for people who are wounded, who are broken, who are in need, and they seek to make them healthy again. They go out to the needy people and they help them. Now, that's a noble task. I mean, that's clearly a part of our pastoral calling, except for the motivation, Peterson says. For Messiah clergy, the motivation for helping people get well is so that the Messiah clergy themselves can feel needed, can feel useful, 
can feel like they are doing something good to help them feel good and to look good before other people. Messiah clergy then treat other people as just mere objects, just means to which they can help them feel good about themselves and affirm their own effectiveness as clergy. On the other hand, Peterson says, there are what he calls manager clergy. Manager clergy are not people who seek out the unhealthy people, but the healthy ones. The ones who are talented, who are devoted, who are put together, who are faithful, who are disciplined, who are prepared. Manager clergy hone in on them. They look for them, and then they seek to bring them in and plug them in and find the right place for them to serve in an ever-growing, ever-widening, ever-expanding congregational machine so that the church could get bigger and more efficient and healthier and more vital. And the manager mentality is that the bigger the church becomes and the more healthy people I get to be a part of it, then the better I look and the more satisfied I feel and the, the more worth my calling I am. Again, for manager clergy, people are mere objects, numbers, statistics. I have to admit to you that when I first read this book and read the heart of its message over 15 years ago, it hit me like a brick. Still to this day, some of the most convicting words I've ever read. Because I will admit to you, just a few years out of seminary, even just serving here as an associate pastor among you, I quickly identified in myself both Messiah and manager tendencies in me, in the way I look at parishioners as mere objects or statistics which I can use for my own external motivation to boost my self-esteem, to clarify my self-worth, and assure me that I'm doing a good job. And I have to say, but if, if I had met this rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, that would have been my instinct too. And I wouldn't have blamed Jesus if he had seen this man simply for what he needed or what for, for what he could offer. I wouldn't blame Jesus if he approached him messianically or managerially. But what's so amazing about Mark 10 is that Jesus chose neither. Instead, he chose a response that totally flipped that paradigm upside down. You want to know what he said? Mark 10, 21. This is what he said. Jesus looked at him carefully and loved him. It took me a while to learn this as a pastor. And I'll admit to you that even to this day, I still have to keep learning this lesson. But as a part of this church, as a part of Hyde Park United Methodist, for me as your senior pastor, you are not a mere statistic or an object or a number. You are not a mere financial unit or giving household. You are not a mere volunteer cog in a giant machine that we want to get bigger 
and better. You are not a mere notch in my belt. This is a place where we want Mark 10:21 to be the governing dynamic of our relationships. A place where you can come and most importantly feel loved as a person by me and by everyone else. And as as imperfect as you and I are, this is a place where we should expect to be loved together and loved by God. And I suspect that as much as this is a challenge for us as clergy, this story is in the Bible because it's a challenge to all of us. And as much as the manager and Messiah tendencies might be real for clergy people like me, I wonder if this is a dynamic that all of us need to wrestle with, regardless of our walk in life or our occupation. I wonder if this is a lesson that each of us have to learn as well in our own context, in our own lives. Is there any part of you this morning that is either a manager or a messiah in your relationships with other people? Having a manager mentality would mean that when you look at other people in your life, people that you interact with on a regular basis, a manager mentality sees them merely as people to help you get what you want and get what you need. And so you look for the best people for the most talented people, for the right people, to serve you and your needs in a way that makes you feel good about yourself, to help you feel accomplished and fulfilled, and help you look good in front of other people. Now, you may not consciously look at it that way, but after some deep soul-searching, I suspect that there is a part of all of us who have a manager mentality. And then... There's a part of you that is a Messiah as well. You see other people not for what they have, but for what they lack. And you do your very best to help meet their needs in such a way that you feel good about yourself and you look good in front of other people such that your self-worth is tied to how many people you have helped and to the extreme to which you went. Now, there is nothing intrinsically wrong in principle, with either of these two options. But when you take it to an extreme, just like this rich young ruler did, then that is the precise moment when Jesus identifies in you something that needs to be inverted, something that needs to be flipped upside down. And it is all tied to your identity and your self-worth. For Jesus told this young man and wants to tell all of us today that your self-worth is not dictated by how you use others to make you feel and make you look in front of other people. Your self-worth is found in only one place, in losing yourself completely in order to follow God entirely. That's why he said what he said in Mark 10, 21. You want to know the rest of that verse? This is what he says. Jesus looked at him carefully and loved him. And he said, you are lacking one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But the man was dismayed at this statement, and he went away saddened 
because he had many possessions. What a challenging word for this man. Jesus realized that the one thing that this man needed to do was to let go of the one barrier that was preventing him from seeing himself the way God saw him as a person of love who was loved by God who could then love other people and that one barrier for him was money and I wonder what that barrier is for you I mean it could be money it could be possessions we often singularly translate this story to be only about money that may or may not be the case for you noted author and Preacher Barbara Brown Taylor has said this about this passage. She said, it seems to me that Christians mangle this story in at least two ways. One, by acting as if it were not about money at all. Or two, acting as if it were only about money. And I think she's right. To some degree, it is about money. And it could be primarily about money and possessions for you. Barbara Brown Taylor says, as far as Jesus is concerned, money is like nuclear power. It it may be able to do a lot of good in the world, but only within strongly built and carefully regulated systems. But it's not only about money. For you, it may not only be about money. It's about any way that you see other people merely as ways to make yourself feel good and look good in front of others. When in reality, there is only one thing that ought to be our chief concern in life, how we choose to lose ourselves completely in order to love God entirely. Not about being first, but being last. Because only the last will be first. It is about losing ourselves completely in order to follow God entirely. Because you know what? Here's the main thing we learn about God in this story. God is neither a Messiah or a manager in God's view of you. God does not simply see you for your hurts that need to be healed or your brokenness that needs to be made whole. And God does not merely see you for your talents and how God wants to use you. Now don't misunderstand me. God definitely wants to heal you of your hurts, and God definitely wants to use you in the world. Both of those things are true, but God sees you so much more than that. God sees you more than either of these things. God sees you first and foremost as a person to love and be loved and to love other people. That's how God sees you. And God so wants you to see that about yourself that God wants you to remove anything and everyone that would prevent you from seeing yourself as lovable and capable of love. And if there is anything in your life that is preventing you from experiencing that, then the message for you is the exact same message that Jesus gave this rich young ruler. Let it go. Part ways with it. If there is anything in your life that is dictating your identity or defining who you are in ways that are antithetical to God's love for you or your capability of loving other people, let it go. That's what Jesus was telling this man. 
Let go of anything that prevents you from seeing yourself as a person that God loves. And that, that is easy to forget. Five years ago this month, a young man in India appeared in front of the Indian consulate unconscious. When he was finally revived in a private hospital, he was unable to remember his name, could not name any loved ones, did not know his hometown, could not give any information about his passport or identification. He was diagnosed with a brain tumor that had caused him immediate and significant loss of memory. He did not know who he was. So a charitable agency stepped in and began working with government officials to help establish this man's identity, and they decided to turn to a very modern-day resource, Facebook. They took a picture of this man and blasted him all across social media. Within a few months, thousands and thousands of people had seen this person's picture, and one day, one of those Facebook users recognized him. So they finally contacted his wife, who was overjoyed at the fact that he had been found. She provided the appropriate paperwork and identification, and he was able to regain his identity. Before he left the hospital, a news agency showed up for reporters to interview him. His name was Donagavil Gunasakaran, and when the reporters arrived, they found him weeping, weeping with tears of joy and relief that he had rediscovered who he was. Now, I suspect that when Jesus was having his conversation with this fella, that Jesus was kind of hoping that this man's story would end in the exact same way. Hoping that when Jesus reminded this rich young ruler of who he was in God, that this man would be so overcome with gratitude and relief that he would be weeping with tears of joy and a readiness to accept his new identity in Jesus. But that's not how this story ended, is it? As much as we would have wanted for this rich young ruler to let go of whatever barrier it was, you know how it turned out. This man walked away from Jesus, unwilling to let it go because he had too many possessions, because those barriers had taken over his life, and he was therefore unable to extract his artificial identity from the divine one that God had wanted to give him. Sad ending, but it doesn't have to be yours. This morning, the same call is upon your life that Jesus made upon this rich young ruler. In a few moments, when you come forward to celebrate communion, this may be an opportunity to listen to the Spirit, to identify within yourself whatever that barrier is that is preventing you from seeing yourself the way God sees you. 
to confess before God how you have both messianic and managerial tendencies in your relationships with other people. How you have drawn on people as objects to artificially identify yourself in a way that is not your true identity in Christ. And when you come forward this morning, perhaps stopping at the altar rail, you can let it go. So that you can perhaps, for the first time in a long time, weep tears of joy rather than walk away sad. And yes, today is World Communion Sunday. It's always a good reminder that regardless of our differences all around the world, we are not defined by what draws us apart, but by what holds us together. And we are all children of God, and therefore we can see others in the exact same way. Does any of this sound impossible? Of course it does. Of course it sounds impossible. But that's why we love what Mark says in chapter 10, verse 27. With God, all things are possible. Let's pray together. God, we come together this morning in gratitude for the way you see us. Not simply as people to heal or people to use, but people to love. And we come together to confess our tendencies to treat others as objects. Help us, O Lord, in the spirit of your love for us to love others. Not to use them, but simply to love them. And we thank you for World Communion Sunday, the reminder that we all need each other, and that you've created this world to be an interdependent network of love for one another. That's your vision for the world. And though we have fallen far short of that ideal, you've called us to make that love a reality, that your kingdom may come on earth as it is in heaven. As we prepare to come forward for communion this morning, open our hearts, ready our spirits, widen our gaze, raise our attention heavenward so that we can experience your love and in turn love others. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord and let all God's people say, Amen. And so in response to God's word this morning, we invite you to prepare God's tithes, your gifts, your offerings, your prayer cards, as we invite the ushers to come forward.